Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm Scott Agnes. Well, here we are for the second straight year. Pacers, Cavaliers in round one. And as you would expect, there is all kinds of attention going to be placed on this series. Understandably so, because of LeBron. So to talk about that and more, I'll be joined today on the podcast by Dave McMiniman of ESPN and ESPN.com. He's in Cleveland and on the Cavaliers beat. So if there's anything Cavs or LeBron related, he's on it. He's also a best-selling author with my friend Brian Windhorst as they authored Return of the King, LeBron James, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and the greatest comeback in NBA history, authored after their 2016 comeback down 3-1 to the Golden State Warriors to claim the title. We'll get to my conversation with Dave in just a moment, but first, some of my thoughts on this series. Offensively, the playoff suits the Pacers' playing style, really. They want to run in terms of pace. They're one of the slowest teams in the league. They like the mid-range game. They'll take those open shots that so many teams, because of the analytics, will ignore. But they have to make a point to going inside. That includes Miles Turner and Demonis Sabonis, but more so, keep attacking. They have to earn those foul calls, something that Victor Oladipo thought he earned before his All-Star days. And then once he turned an All-Star, felt he was finally getting some of the foul calls he deserved. But against LeBron, he's going to play that physical style. And typically in the postseason, the aggressors, the team that plays more aggressive and really takes away that airspace as teams always like to stay, they're the ones that are then rewarded with more calls. Like the Pacers on LeBron, I'm thinking we can expect to see the Cavs throw many different looks at Oladipo. And this is where things get interesting for him. He was in the playoffs last year with OKC, but very much in a supporting role, much like his former teammate and current one, Demonis Sabonis. When they were with Russell Westbrook, he was named MVP that year and dominated the basketball. Therefore, over this last year, where Oladipo has been able to thrive with this Pacers team, his usage rate is way up, and that's something Kevin Pritchard, remember, at Oladipo's opening press conference and even before that on the flight from his home to here in Indianapolis. That was something Kevin Pritchard promised him. Come to Indianapolis here and your usage rate is going to be way up. For Oladipo and Sabonis, this season's really been a coming out party, especially so though for Victor. He's back in his second home of Indiana where he's appreciated and it's obvious and he said so. He's more confident than ever. And for Vic, that started with his mentality. It was something that he was going to make change to even before the trade as he locked in in May and June down in Miami with his trainer, David Alexander, really gathered himself mentally and then also, of course, obviously worked on his physique, but the Pacers really need for him to be atop his game. One other matchup that will be fun, I think, is Darren Callison versus George Hill. G. Hill, of course, from Indiana, Broad Ripple, IUPUI, former Pacer, before he was dealt in a three-team trade that brought Jeff Teak here for only one season. That didn't really work out well, but there was 
plenty of reasons for that. And this offseason, Collison proved to be a great fit for this roster that Kevin Pritchard and Chad Buchanan went out and got, just like Boyan Bogdanovich was. For Collison, he was the Pacers' starting point guard all the way back in 2010-11 season, and then for more than half of the following year. But then the reins were given to George Hill, and he thrived in that role. There's no doubt about it at that time. That was the right move, and ultimately it probably was best for the Pacers and George Hill to part ways. But George Hill was dealt from Sacramento to Cleveland back in February, part of several trade deadline moves for this Cavaliers team, which they had to make. Otherwise, I'm not sure where exactly they would be uh, here in the postseason, seeding-wise, probably a couple spots back, perhaps. You have LeBron, though, which always means you're going to be competitive and in contention for something. And Darren is having his best season as a pro, surprising as that is, because he's 31, he's in the latter stages of his career, and talked with him at great length about some of the changes he made physically and mentally in the offseason, and a lot of it spurred from a conversation he had with one of his favorite players of all time. That's an MVP in Steve Nash, who a couple times have been part of that elusive 90-50-40 club, something that Collison flirted with. But what Darren was able to do this season, and he's very grateful for his role in the season he had with the Pacers, is he led the league in three-point field goal percentage, making almost 47% of his threes. He attempted almost three per game. On top of that, he managed a season-low 1.2 turnovers per game, which is incredibly important, especially from your point guard, from your leader out on the floor um, who kind of sets the tone offensively. That helped him lead all players in assist-to-turnover ratio. I'm fully expecting to see the best out of both teams because they both have a clean bill of health, or at least as clean as you can get after the grind of an 82-game schedule. You look at the game notes for both teams, and under injury report, none to report. For a team, for executives, and especially for the training staff for both teams, that's important and that is incredibly rewarding. Game one is on Sunday, game two, Wednesday night. Then the series comes to Indianapolis for three and four on Friday and Sunday, respectively. But between games one and two, Pacers will not take that short flight home, even though there's more than 72 hours between games. And I asked Coach Nate McMillan about this. He says it's a business trip, and they want the focus to remain in Cleveland. So that's what they plan to do. It's also going to be interesting to see how the Pacers handle the spotlight, handle the additional media coverage, quite frankly, because they've appeared on national TV just once. We don't get a ton, very few, in fact, national writers that come through Bankers Life Fieldhouse throughout a season. Only nationally televised game was in Indy for Paul George's return back on December 13th. That's it. One game. This series starts on ABC. Two of the games are scheduled for TNT, and keep in mind, only four have announced the broadcasting deals because we don't know how far, how long this series will go. The Pacers' only game this season was on ESPN, and so we've heard some players, especially Darren Collison, be more outspoken than the others about that and how they look to show the world about this Pacers team, their chemistry, and what their brand of basketball is about. Lastly, with all eyes centered on LeBron, per usual, we'll all be watching closely how Lance handles yet another matchup against him. Lance tries to play physical, tries to get him his head. He thinks that is what you need to do against LeBron. While on the court, Lance has said LeBron never talks to him, but I think it's inevitable that there will be some kind of altercation during this series. The Pacers have never beaten LeBron in the postseason. The numbers favor the Cavs, but 
I think the biggest takeaway, too, is that all that is history. The Pacers have a chance to right their present, and that's what they have to be focused on, not get caught up in the numbers game, which Nate McMillan made clear that he is well aware of those numbers. 21 consecutive first-round victories. LeBron's teams have swept the last five, including the Pacers, last season. Most of that is history. It's old news, and like Oladipo said last week, they're trying to shock the world. Now, for a deep dive on the Cavaliers in this series, here's my conversation with Dave. All right, I'll now welcome in reporter and New York Times best-selling author, Dave McMiniman of ESPN and ESPN.com. That has to sound nice, Dave. Let's get right to it, though, as the Cavs finished 50-32 and 32 during the regular season. Two games better than the Pacers, so it's the 4-5 matchup here with the Cavs having home court advantage. As you look back at the 82-game schedule, and we saw LeBron play all 82 games for the first time of his career. If anything, what can we extrapolate from the Cavs' regular season? I don't think that does much to have us learn about who the Cavs are going into the playoffs. The best indicator of who the Cavs are, quite frankly, is the way they ended the regular season. And that was you know, winning uh, 11 out of uh, 14 games of their last 14 games. And one of those losses, it was a game where Kevin Love, Kyle Korver were given the night off. LeBron played just the first quarter in the season finale against the New York Knicks. So really, you're talking about 11 out of 13. Uh, and they started to get some sort of defensive identity. Uh, you know, For the season, the Cavs were 29th in the league in defensive efficiency. That's terrible, and that gives them zero chance to win anything in the postseason. Uh, the team they were defensively towards the end of the year, still not world beaters on that side of things. But when they had some roster continuity, uh, they had some health, uh, and they had the younger, more athletic players they picked up in the trade deadline as part of their unit. Uh, they looked better. Um, so, you know, I, I think they are a team that's cautiously confident going into the first round, knowing that they've survived what was just a hellish regular season at times, and now they can just look at a clean slate in front of them and start off at home uh, where, where they've done quite well in the playoffs. Is the drama that we've seen at least covered from the outside, how real is all that? How much can that factor into a series like this? Uh, it's real, uh, but they cleared out a lot of the drama. Uh, you know That's why there isn't... Isaiah Thomas and Dwayne Wade on this team as they enter the playoffs. Uh, you know, what we covered since mid-February was, of course, Teron Lue dealing with some health issues. Uh, but, you know, Ty says he feels as good as he's felt since he made his return uh, on the eve of the NBA playoffs. Uh, we dealt with J.R. Smith throwing a bowl of soup at Damon Jones. Uh, <laughs> That's an all-time and... <laughs> storyline for a series, or a season, really, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it, it'll never... That, that's going to be like the Trump card. I'm like, oh, you covered a crazy season? I covered a guy throwing a ball of soup at his assistant coach. I'm curious, um, what was the reaction when you were reaching out, calling, texting, or whatever, team sources, trying to figure out what type of soup? Because that was everything we all wanted to know. Was yeah. the reaction like, really? Or were they like willing to give that up? Uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Like, I got some confirmation. So, you know, you get a tip. I worked on the story with Brian Windhorst, and we kind of put our heads together in terms of who would talk to who. Um, but, you know, there, I had some very, like, serious conversations with sources being like, well, if you tell me what you know, then I'll tell you what I know. <laughs> like, we're talking about a bullshit. Like, <laughs> right. so, it's not this for deep. the most part, surprisingly, um, that story's been strangely protected. Like, you won't see, outside of the initial wave of, like, that it happened, 
no one has uh, really talked about it. I, I offered um, to JR if he'd want to clear the air and sit down with me and Damon Jones on camera and let the world see that they're okay now. And, uh, and he respectfully declined. So um, I, I don't really know. I, honestly, I don't even know what type of soup it is now. I know some people have written chicken tortilla, but I've never confirmed that. So okay. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but even with that, the reason I even brought up this, that story was, you know, J.R. Smith has since been moved to a bench role, and he actually seems to be playing well in it. Um, so there's not really drama associated with that either. Um, you know, I, I don't think this is a team full of drama right now. I think it's a team full of question marks, though, because of the lack of experience uh, for some of its key players. And also some of its key players – who didn't quite get a rhythm yet since they were joined the team, N- namely Rodney hood. Uh, to me, he's the big X factor as the Cavs enter the postseason Cause he's had some games. He looks really good. Uh, he's had some games where he looked like someone you absolutely cannot rely upon in a, uh, you know, must win situation. Defensively continues to be, I think the theme with the Cavaliers, obviously there's LeBron, but their woes defensively, how much of it is personnel and how much of it is, is schematics and the newness to this group? Some of it is, and J.R. Smith just did a podcast with uninterrupted um, Victor Cruz, um, the former New York Giants receiver. And he said, like, listen, when we enter into a season, we look at September to June, and we kind of block out everything, including rest, including mental effort, uh, including physical effort, uh, over that long haul, and quite frankly, you don't see our best until you have to see our best because we're saving our best. Sure. So, you know, th- I think there's a degree of that. Um, you know, the Cavs are trying to become just the fifth team in the 71 year history of the NBA to make it to four straight finals. Um, LeBron's trying to double that, you know? So if LeBron is so important to their defense last year in the postseason, his role was kind of a, a roving uh, backline of defense where he, he'd run and, at guys either to get weak side blocks or to come for double teams out of nowhere. Um, so he could try to get deflections or steals to lead to, you know, open court opportunities. If LeBron for very good reason is not giving that defensive effort, every possession in the, in the regular season, because he has those seven straight finals under his belt and he's trying to save something to get to an eighth. You can't really expect this to have that defense look anything like it, it, it will look like in the postseason, you know. So I think that's a big, a really a big part of it um, when it comes to the Cavs. I think they address some of their personnel issues. You know, um, point of attack has been really even with the Cavs' success the last couple of years has been tough. Kyrie Irving was never the best defender in terms of stopping point guard penetration. Adding a guy like George Hill, who isn't the young spry guy he was in his prime years in Indiana. But he's a guy who's long. He's a guy who has lateral quickness, who has some wiry strength. He can give them an honest effort on as an on-ball defender. Uh, so the you know the opposing offense isn't always playing downhill. Um, so that's like a personnel type issue. And then you know they don't really have a true rim protector, and and I'm sure they would would like to have that. 
um, especially you know Kevin Love as your starting center. You mean they didn't sign get it done? They didn't sign Kendrick Perkins to handle that. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing though. Like I got tweets like, "What about Eddie Tavares? Why don't they bring back Eddie Tavares from last year?" People, you know, they they fall in love with you know he he was a physical specimen, but yeah, let's be real here. Um, But you know they they did add Larry Nance Jr. who can do some of that rim protection. not quite your traditional size as you'd, you'd think about a guy clogging up the lane, but but he has the athleticism to make up for that. Um, but, you know, what they do have is a lineup they believe, especially their starting lineup with Jeff Green in there, is that they can pretty much switch all five positions. You know, you, you don't want to get Kevin Love on a point guard, but, you know, he made a nice stop on Steph Curry in Game 7 of the 2016 mm-hmm. NBA Finals. Uh, so he can give you a couple of possessions on a point guard. But other than that, I mean, between George Hill, Rodney Hood, who we expect to be the starting shooting guard, uh, LeBron and Jeff Green, they can switch anything. And, and that, they believe, will be uh, their, a defensive strength of theirs sure. uh, when, again, uh, you would never put defense and strength in the same sentence for the Cavs in the regular season. And that's very different from the Pacers, who try to stay with their man for the most part as much as they can. Whereas most of the league goes with that switch-everything rule, Pacers have trended away from that more than anything. Yeah, I, I, like so I'm curious, like how do the Pacers look at the Cavs? Because, of course, they went 3-1 and one in the regular season against them, but all those games came before the Cavs changed their roster. There's that. So, I mean, there's Miles Turner not playing in most of them. And he, he's kind of been in and out, um, both with injuries and mentally, I think, throughout this season. So that's interesting. The one thing that fascinates me covering George Hill was the matchup George Hill and, and Darren Collison, former teammates. Uh, we saw George Hill overtake the starting position from Darren. And then I think, of course, the primary thing we'll all be watching will be either Boyan and Lance mostly rotating on guarding LeBron. Boyan has done the best job, I think, statistically, at least this season. See, there's the gift for me doing this po- podcast. I will not say Bogdanovich's first name wrong. Boyan. <laughs> so, Bogey no, for I, short. Bo- Bogey works. So maybe that's why I, I got confused. But, um, you know, the, the Pacers, rightfully show, should look at their team as, as having the type of depth that I think you, you need against the Cavs. I think, obviously, I don't think I'm being um, – someone who's breaking news here when you say when you talk about the top level talent though as great of a season Victor Oladipo had you know the cast of LeBron James and and that's to me what I think gives a lot of people in the organization confidence heading into this series because they know they have work to do and they know this is going to be the first game since the trade deadline since they changed their roster they're going to be completely healthy and uh, you know that can allow them to tinker with some new lineups they didn't really get to use during the regular season, um, which would lend itself to the idea of let's try to get better as the playoffs go on. And we're not entering the playoffs playing our best ball, but you know because LeBron is playing his individually best ball, um, you know, and you know that he's going to give even a better defensive effort at this point. That could be enough to carry us through you know, a first-round series and give us time to get better as the playoffs go on. How much of a storyline, how much has LeBron been asked by you guys about Lance? Because here, especially with the TV reporters around, that's one of the big quotable things that you can ask Lance about is his matchup with LeBron and blowing in his ear and all of that. 
Yeah, you know it's funny. Um, no one and LeBron did just one day of media um, in between the regular season ending and the postseason beginning. Uh, no one asked a specific question about Lance. Uh, LeBron kind of did like a long-winded answer where he mentioned every single person you kind of have to think about on the Pacers, and and he offered up Lance's name, but. But that was it. Um, to me, actually, the, the Lance story that, that's more interesting is that last year, I think it was in March, the Cavs did like a, a you know a, a mini combine with with some players who were out of the league when they were trying to strengthen their team. I mean, it was February when they were trying to strengthen their team for the postseason run, and and the Cavs worked out Lance Stevenson, Jordan Farmar, Mario Chalmers. Uh, didn't end up signing any of them, but they could have had Lance Stevenson on their team uh, for for very cheap. Um, Lance Stevenson could have been you yeah. know, doing the same role he is for the Pacers on the Cavs. Based on what Lance said last year, he was about seventy five percent. Maybe this factored into this decision with a sprained left ankle that he had uh, with okay. the Minnesota Timberwolves. He dealt with a groin tear that he had to have surgery on earlier in the year, so it was mm-hmm. a year where he really was not healthy. He was interested in joining Cleveland, and that would have made for an interesting dynamic. But what's crazy is he came back with the Pacers last season. They were, I think they won five straight to end the year. Um, they only loss was to Cleveland. Then they met right. Cleveland in the round one, and they got swept. So Lance coming back, he was the spark that Dole locker room needed. They weren't, yeah. It wasn't a bad locker room. They were just a misfit of personalities, and he energized them. But they didn't lose except when they played the Cavaliers last year. Right. There is a newness, and I think the Cavs hope to benefit from the newness of, you know, the the downside is the inexperience, right? But the, the, the upside is the just unadulterated joy of guys like Jordan Clarkson, Larry Nance Jr., uh, Jetty Osman, Ante Zicic getting to experience the playoffs for the first time. And I would imagine the Pacers... Um, even if it, if it's not their, their first taste of the playoffs, this is certainly Victor Oladipo's first taste of the playoffs as, like, the face of the team. And this is, you know, as a guy who seems to have acquitted himself well to all the added attention, all the added stardom, um, all the added responsibility of being the face of a franchise that has come at him this season, uh, he must be just, you know, champing at the bit for uh, the, the chance to have this even more elevated stage all to himself. Yeah, he loves it. And he shines in the spotlight, whether it's him singing, whether it's him on all-star dunking or, or this. So I don't think he'll shy away from the spotlight, whereas other players, you never know with the newness of this, both and on both teams, how they react to all of that. But I think Victor will go over well, and this Pacers team, Dave, is very much playing to the storyline of the underdog. Uh, Vic, in the last game, he took the mic at Bankers Life Fieldhouse and said, let's go shock the world, we're not done yet. They're going to wear their gold statement uniforms the entire way in the first round that are the okay. gold. That's telling, and they continually also play off the storyline that they've only been on national TV once, and it was on Paul George's return. And, of course, this series is starting not just on national TV, but over the air, ABC. So that's notable for this bunch. You got a veteran like Darren Collison saying, people don't watch us. They don't know who we are. Now we're going to go show them. Yeah, and I like just from from my perspective, you know, I try to pay attention to the league as much as possible outside of being with the Cavs every day, but – Nate McMillan was kind of looked at as a little bit of a retread coach. I think the perception when you know Frank Vogel moved on to Orlando and, and Nate assumed the job um, rather than bring in a new guy. And 
I think he's earning a lot of respect for the the job he did he did with the with the Pacers this year. Um, Tyron Lue said that you know he should be a coach of the year candidate, and um, you know I had a vote this year. I didn't vote him top three, but I, I gave him heavy consideration, and I think that's that's a, a good thing because you know I, I think you can assume the personality of a coach to some degree, and and he's kind of a of that guy with, I imagine, a bit of a chip on his shoulder, and uh, you know that that's a good thing for for a group that is trying to embrace the under, underdog. Yeah, they try to preach steady waters, and he has that calming influence. One of the big differences that uh, we're also talking about very much so is this team in crunch time situations. If you remember last year during the first round, they wouldn't be very good in those late game situations and right. cough it up, despite you know only losing by an average of four points this year. Has been very different. They're eleven and two in games decided by three points or less, and really those two losses are such outcasts. You had Bogey throw the ball away in the closing seconds, and Boston went to the other end and made a game-winning layup. And then less than two weeks ago, Darren Collison made what really was a meaningless three-pointer at the end of their game in Denver as time expired. So the result was a three-point loss. So this Pacers team, they're very much taking pride in being good come closing time. Which is interesting because that would make it be a strength against a strength. Um, Pacers against the Cavs. The Cavs are undefeated this year heading into the fourth quarter with a lead. Uh, so if they can put themselves in that position, you would imagine if, if the trend follows, um, they'll, they would consider themselves confident to be there. Uh, but if the Pacers, for whatever reason, can have that if they were trailing headed to the fourth, but make it a two-point game or something like that late in the game, they're going to be confident too. So... Um, I hope that leads to some high-level basketball and we get to, to cover some good games. Exactly, and if the trend continues for this Pacers team, do not be surprised when they fall behind 15 points. Although, I don't know if you can do that against LeBron or in the postseason, that sort of thing. Countless times, Dave, this season, we've seen them fall behind 15, 23 times, and they've come back to win, something right. they couldn't do last season either. I, I think it would be tough for, you know, just having covered all these games at Quicken Loans Arena the last couple of years to their playoff runs it would be very tough for any team to fall down that on the road against the Cavs uh you know, the energy in that building is pretty palpable um but you know it, it, the Cavs have enough Jekyll and Hyde in them um where you do that in Indiana um you probably got to have a, a two or three shots to make a run to get into it because the Cavs just haven't shown this group this particular group haven't shown the steady focus um, to uh, really lock in for 48 minutes yet um, with this group. And, you know, again, sometimes that lets you see that when they actually need to do it, um, they're fantastic. And you saw late in the season, you know, they were down 17 to the Washington Wizards with six minutes to go, won that game. They were down 30 in the first half to the Philadelphia 76ers and ended up losing by two, but they made that a game. So when they really put it all together, they're straight dominant. But, you know, I would say that a team that is always at their best isn't falling down by 30 or isn't falling down by 17 at home to a struggling Wizards team. So um, I I think – I don't think they're a juggernaut in in terms of that. Uh, I think the Pacers should feel like, you know, they'll have the ability, you know, to come at them in waves or even if it doesn't go – well and early going the Cavs I don't think are quite there right now where it okay we're up 15 to end the first quarter let's just keep adding to this lead like I don't think they're there yet 
Interestingly enough, we're nearing the end, and we haven't really talked about Kevin Love. He's the second all-star on this team. It's kind of fitting for his type of career. He's always in the shadows doing the dirty work and having good games, but we just don't talk about Kevin enough. Where is he at mentally and physically entering round one? He's in a really good spot. I, I sat down with, with him this week for a Sports Center interview. It's going to be airing on Sunday um, in its entirety before game one. He is playing really good, first of all, which I think always helps. So he shot 32 for 70 from three in the 11 games he had when he returned from his left-hand injury. Um, uh, lights out. Uh, he proved his value this year when he was the – you know the the one A even more so than the number two option. The Cavs went eleven and two this year when when Kevin scored twenty four points or more, and I think he feels good and comfortable um, that he is entering the postseason with this little extra responsibility on his shoulders. It's all he wanted really since he got here. Uh, since he came to Cleveland, he had to play that third fiddle because LeBron and Kyrie are so. You're, you know, ridiculously, undeniably talented that you weren't going to really tell one of those two guys to take a step back. Um, the Cavs need Kevin Love to take a step forward here if they want to have a deep postseason run. And, you know, he has spoken about wanting to take a little extra leadership uh, role uh, to himself as the postseason goes on. I don't think that's really his kind of personality. I, he's more of a kind of a sarcastic guy who's you know, making some jokes, um, but he is a guy who, who, you know, leads by example. He plays hard. He sacrifices his body in terms of, like, he knows he can't rim protect by getting blocked, so he sets himself up to take charges, and he does that quite often. And uh, I, I think, you know, there's nothing that concerns me in terms of, oh, there's a red flag that, you know, such and such is bothering him about his, his body or there's a red flag that such and such is bothering him, bothering him about his interpersonal dynamic with the Cavs right now. I mean, of course, he came out and was, was you know, very forthcoming to share his story about some of the mental health things that he's dealt with. But I think the fact that he did that months ago has allowed him to kind of internalize and continue to keep the healthy habits of, Yes, I'm still in this spotlight. I'm still in this fishbowl, but you know what? I'm still going to go talk to my therapist. I'm still going to do things like meditation to keep myself in a good mental space to deal with all the demands of this crazy life that I live. Um, so I, I don't see any kind of nagging thing that would make me say that, oh, he's about to have a little bit of a drop-off head into the postseason. If anything, I think he's in a good spot to you know continue to shine. More players go through this then let on too. I mean, even if they're not even in a bad place, it can be beneficial. Like guys like Victor Oladipo are meeting. Pacers have their team psychologist on the road right now in Cleveland, right. Dr. Chris Carr. And it's something, even if it's just to bounce ideas off of or to get them centered before something important. I asked Nate McMillan about this as it relates kind of to Ty Lu, who missed some time um, just to right. back away from things. He said, yeah, I've even met with Dr. Carr just to talk things over about myself as well. Yeah, I, I, and obviously – I think it's a reflection of society that it's not spoken about as much. Uh, there's still a little level of tab taboo, but I think it's that fear. You, know, people, you you look weak, right? Yeah, and, you know, and then we we see it in the NBA. We see it with guys um, when they're going through the draft process, you know, because you know the draft process. I think it's more evolved in the NBA than say a sport like the NFL. But you know, people there's major, major money on the line and they want to polish up their resume to not have any sort of red flag that would make you 
you know, um, say, I, I don't want to draft this guy. But you look at a guy like Royce White, you know, he tried to be a pioneer in terms of being out there with everything he was going through. I mean, and he had a ton of talent. Um, I One of my buddies was an assistant coach at Iowa State when he was there. So I watched him a, a lot more than I would the average non-Syracuse yeah. college basketball <laughs> player. And, um, you know, but he was out of the league, you know, because it was, well, are we really going to put all these extra programs in place to support a rookie? And his were at a whole different level, right? Because he wouldn't even right. fly. So you'd have to get him there a different way through mm-hmm. a bus or I don't know how, town car, whatever it was. So right. that was a whole different element than just having an, a therapist on staff. Right. But I, I think just the idea, um, what, what I think he did do um, well in terms of advancing the sport was, okay, well, let's actually figure this out. Like, you know, there's probably more people that could use some extra help. But I've spoken to Keon Dueling in the past, and he's been um, quite outspoken since he was finished playing about some of the things he dealt with as a player stemming from uh, sexual abuse when he was a kid. Um, you know, a lot of these guys have these stories. And um, I think the league's in a healthier place than it has been in the past in terms of, of you know, if we're going to expect them to give us results on the court, we should be willing to give them whatever they possibly need off the court to get that. Do you see any uh, great advantage from one coach or the other? Not, not in particular. Um, I, I think, you know, Ty Lue has a staff that he's relied upon um, for deep playoff runs the last couple of years. Um, uh, you know, that, that's that's no slight on, on Nate McMillan, but it's not like he has this wealth of playoff experience with the Pacers that you can say, well, you know, when we fell down 1-0 in this series, we used this or whatever. Um, so I, I think that's an advantage to Ty. I think Ty also, um, as I've mentioned, that, that kind of J.R. Smith rhetoric that he mentioned on that podcast with Victor Cruz, uh, Ty gets his hands dirtier in, in the playoffs. Uh, he's dealing with his de facto defensive coordinator, Mike Longobardi to go through sets that he wants. Um, he breaks out a lot of offense that he kind of saves for the postseason. Yeah, for good like reason. Yeah. Waste, waste all his bullets um, for lack of a better term. So I, 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 I think coaching is a plus on the Cavs side, uh, certainly in, in the postseason. I, I have had people tell me that, um, you know, and you could say this is a negative or a positive. They say, Ty's a much better playoff coach than a regular season coach. So I, I think that's a plus um, for, for the Cavs. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, just from my perspective, you know, I, I know that Nate McMill is very, very respected. Um, I'm just, I'm curious, you know, where you see uh, kind of Nate's strengths and weaknesses heading into the this series. Well, first I'd go with the experience and like the Cavs, the Pacers have a, essentially a defensive coordinator in Dan Burke who joined the coaching staff with Larry Bird back in 1997. So he's been there right. and through Everywhere, and through. Right. And, right, and any time there's a big defensive stand needed, you'll look down at the Pacers' huddle, and while Nate's sitting in the chair, there's Dan Burke on one knee. He's the one diagramming what's going on. But I think both coaches are really of that group that doesn't get enough attention, doesn't get enough credit 
for what they're doing. I mean, here in Indianapolis, and I hate it, but it's the stereotypical, oh, he doesn't coach. I could go in there and yeah. with LeBron coach him to 50 wins. And I go, no, that's not true at all. For one, I'm, obviously, he's got to be a good coach. But two, there's also a lot of things that go into a head coach in managing egos and personalities. And what we've talked about in all of this, from the soup incident to LeBron, and is he staying <laughs> or is he going, you got to manage those situations when it gets down to the playoffs like this. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, okay, neither guy might not be a rah-rah type guy. You know why? Because they they both played in the NBA and were around rah-rah type guys. They probably got under their skin and got under their teammates' skin, and they didn't want to be that guy. You know, what Nate has to do is say, oh, you know, oh, did you, were you watching NBA TV last night? Did you see Bulls Sonics playing 96? Right. Yeah, I was you know, there. guy playing next to Gary Payton. Ty Lue, what he has to do, oh, did you see Kobe and Iverson playing on ESPN last night? Yeah, Yeah, that was me. Uh, on the bench of the Lakers. So, I mean, they have that built-in clout. And, um, you know, I, I think that goes a long way. It's just kind of how you carry yourself as a be there, been there, done there, uh, done that, excuse me, uh, type of type of person. And they both bring that to the table. And the thing I keep hearing from the Pacer players is the adaptability and how much he listens to guys on the floor because they're going through it and they see something differently. That's where he's changed, um, I think, in this season. Dave, I'll let you go. I appreciate you taking time. I'm not in Cleveland. You are. I'll see you in Indy here next week when series comes here for games three and four. Appreciate you taking the time, all right? Thanks, Scott.